This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hey, this is episode 104 of the Travel Writing World podcast. And joining me today is Jeff Biggers, and we're talking about his new book, In Sardinia, An Unexpected Journey in Italy. Jeff's new book is as much a cultural history of the island as it is a travel book. And in this wide-reaching conversation, we talk about D.H. Lawrence and the travel literature about the island, Sardinia's ancient history, a few environmental protection laws as they relate to tourism on the island, travel as a literary framework in writing nonfiction, and much more. As ever, links are in the show notes at travelwritingworld.com, where you'll also find more interviews and other goodies. If you enjoy what we're doing here, please consider supporting the show with only a few dollars, pounds, or euro a month, less than a cup of coffee, at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. And soon, I'll report on some exciting updates about my upcoming book, The Hill of the Skull. But visit travelwritingworld.com forward slash skull, S-K-U-L-L, to receive an email notification when the project launches on Kickstarter this autumn. So now, here is Jeff Biggers. Jeff Biggers joins me on the podcast today to chat about his newest book, In Sardinia, An Unexpected Journey in Italy. Welcome to the podcast, and where in the world do we find you today? Thanks for having me, Jeremy. And I am in Iowa City, just days away to getting back to Europe and Sardinia. Very good. So Iowa City, you've written about... Um, Appalachia. So how on earth did you get to Sardinia? You know, I have been connected to Italy since 1989. I first lived in Florence and then I met uh, the woman who would become my wife and we uh, lived in Bologna for many years. So really for 30 years, I was going back and forth, living in Bologna and then uh, at, at times coming back to the States. It took us 30 years, Jeremy, to finally get on that plane and go over to Sardinia. And I think that's a typical situation for a lot of people. We go to Italy, we kind of do the grand tour. We start mm -hmm. with Venice and Florence and Rome, and then we go to other places in the region. And often it just takes us forever to, to really go back to me, the source and the fountain of so much of Italian culture, which I really found in Sardinia. Mm -hmm. But you, you also say in the book that, um, you know, the love of Italy is an acquired affair. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to ask you about that. I recently took a group of um, young students to Italy doing the Grand Tour, of course. Um, and, you know, they acquired it pretty quickly. So uh, what, what do you mean by, by that? And um, if you can unpack that a little bit. Sure. Try not to be too poetic there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not only in love with Italy, but an Italian. <laughs> and, my, and my children are Italians as well, you know. Um, you know, by that, the love of Italy is an acquired affair because I think we all have our own Italy that we fall in love with. For some people, it's, you know, it's the, the countryside of Tuscany. And we've seen that, of course, with the powerful writing of Francis Mays. For others, mm -hmm. it's the urban cities, uh, be it in Rome or, or in Milan, some people, you know, like Peter Robb, the great Australian writer, fell in love with Sicily. And then we have people like Tim Parks from England who have really planted himself in places like Verona or Tobias Jones in Parma. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. For me, you know, it, it it took time to find out what I really was searching for and fell in love with. And of course, there's many parts of Italy throughout the country that I, I truly adore. You know, I was married in Spoleto. I'm I'm truly at home in Bologna, where I've been based for so many years. But it was in Sardinia that I felt something truly special that pulled me. And then here we are five years later. Uh, I'm still journeying and, and traveling and researching and trying to understand this spectacular island. Okay. I'm glad that you mentioned uh, the the five-year bit because, um, you know, after even 30 years in Italy, you finally made your way to Sardinia. And in, in 2017, I, I think you and your wife and kids moved to the island um, as part of a right. university sabbatical, if I'm, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, and right. you settled in a port city on the western coast. Is that right? Yeah, we, we we went there in 2016 just for a quick vacation. You know, like most people, you just hit the beaches. And then, you know, as we were going back to the airport in Alguero, we, we, and we didn't even bother to visit Alguero. We just really wanted to do the beaches. And I, I think we were very symbolic of typical tourists. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to the beaches and that's it. And we saw Alguero from the distance as we were going to the airport. And we, this incredible medieval town, you know, and the promontory of Capocaccia was there and the Bay of Alguero and the sun was setting. And I tell you, Jeremy, it was just like this, you know, made for, for, for a movie a moment. And my wife <laughs> pointed at it and she said, that's where we have to live. And literally the, the, within uh, six months, we were having our sabbatical there and we fell in love. So it was, it's up in the northwestern region. It's called Alguero. And it's not far from the northern city of Sassari on the coast there. Mm-hmm. Two questions here I want to to draw attention to. So the first one about university sabbaticals. So are, are both of you university teachers? Is that how you were able to, and on the sabbatical, is that how you were able to spend so much time on the island? Yeah, my wife teaches at Western Illinois okay. University and has for decades. And uh, I'm, I'm an independent consultant. I work with many different universities. Uh, I just recently served as the playwright and resident at Indiana University. And I was at the University of Iowa as their sustainability writer and resident. So I have a project called the Climate Narrative Project, where mm-hmm. I work with uh, scientists and people across all faculties to use the narrative arts, be it creative writing or film or dance or visual arts or whatever we can do, theater, to tell a better environmental and, and climate story. Uh, so that I'm very, uh, very much um, focused on that. So I work with different universities around around the country as well as in Italy. Okay. So I'm so glad that you just brought that up because it ties very nicely into, into my next question. You just mentioned something about when you first went to the island in 2016, you weren't, you were kind of typical tourists. And I think, you know, what I, what I learned from uh, your book is that if I'm kind of understanding it correctly, is, is that the island of Sardinia has been uh, very, very good at resisting the type of kind of commercial and tur- touristic development that we see around most of the Mediterranean. You know, the image that um, comes to mind are these kind of like concrete condos or whatever, just stretching along the coastlines. And if if I'm reading your book right, um, Sardinia has resisted that for a variety of reasons, and they prohibited development along the, the, the coastline. So I guess uh, I'm wondering if you can just like kind of talk about that developmental uh, pause. Yeah, you know, this, it's a very good question because it's, it's almost the paradox of tourism. I mean, most people view Sardinia as this paradise of beaches. And of course, last week, a Little Mermaid film opened up and the search engines just exploded. Over 200% more bookings in Sardinia 
because everybody wanted to go to the beach where the Little Mermaid was filmed. And of course, there's the famous Costa Esmeralda, the Emerald Coast, mm -hmm. where kind of the jet set uh, go to up in the Northeast. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was there just last week and making the news. But the irony, Jeremy, is that in 2006, as part of a movement across the island, a new government took power and realized, hey, this crush of tourism, this crush of development that you see across the Riviera in Italy, in the mainland Italy, in France, and even in Spain, mm -hmm. will have irreversible impacts on Sardinia. And of course, they have Sardinia it has these magnificent little coves and beaches and untouched areas and and the incredibly clean water, of course, is always ranked as one of the best in the Mediterranean. And so in order to protect that, they passed a law in 2006, which said you can no longer build within three kilometers of the uh, of the coast. And, and this was really, a, I think, a dramatic moment, not just for Sardinia, but all of Italy and all of Europe to realize, hey, there are uh, entities, governmental entities. You know, Sardinia is an autonomous region, so they're able to make their own laws in many respects, to actually protect the natural resources and natural habitat. It's an incredible environmental protection law. And so when people come to Sardinia to see these magnificent beaches and these fabled coves, they don't realize they're, they're, they're simply beautiful because they're protected. Right. You know, and obviously there are, there's plenty of, of, of the mass tourism, but it's really pocketed in certain areas. And so I think that's really something we need to talk about is Sardinia sticking its neck out to try to, to move forth with some sort of sustainable tourism, some sort of regenerative travel in this age when really uh, tourism, I think, is getting out of hand mm -hmm. in all, all of Italy. Sure, sure. And, and the, the other interesting bit um, from your book that, that I got was, you know, how incredibly, um, astonishingly so um, populated the island is with these, not just beautiful beaches, but also these kind of Bronze Age, these pre-Roman, archaic archaeological sites all over the island. These, um, I forget what they're called, the Nurhag um, Towers. This, I'm sorry? Nuragi, yeah. The Nuragi Towers, the stone kind of towers that just model model the island. Um, so Sardinia, an island that has a civilization that um, kind of evades many of our kind of textbooks. And I was wondering... Like, um, why do you think Sardinia has been kind of ignored, so to speak, in, in cultural history, popular cultural history, and and even in travel literature, it seems like it's been given short shrift and, and kind of belittled <laughs> in many cases? Oh, certainly. Very much marginalized. In fact, uh, there was a writer in the 1600s from France who said, why is it that you know, we belittle and, and, and kind of diminish the importance of islands. And he actually pointed out Sardinia, saying hmm. the problem is travelers from the main continent go there and then they come back with misinformation and that misinformation spreads. And think about it, that was 400 years ago. And, and so 400 years later, you have a lot of bad travel writing, you have a lot of bad information. <laughs> and you have to really ask why. I think that's a great question, is that instead of seeing the islands on the periphery of the continent, on the periphery of empire, on the periphery of history, as if they don't matter. I, I turn the map 90 degrees. There's a great cartographer, Sabine Retour from Paris, who made this map called the Mediterranean Without Borders. And so she turns the map 90 degrees. So just imagine turning the map to clockwise 90 degrees. And so on your right, 
you see Europe going all the way down eventually into Turkey. And on your left, you have the Maghreb in North Africa going all the way through to Egypt. And there in the center of the map, Jeremy, is the Mediterranean. And in the Mediterranean, you have this central role of islands. You know, if you go all the way at the bottom of the map, there's Cyprus, and then you go up to Crete, and then you go to Sicily. And then there in the center, as the center uh, of central story of the Mediterranean, is Sardinia. And I feel like that was a new way of looking, and in fact, a, a more authentic way of looking at the history. That in fact, far from being on the periphery of history, those islands in the middle of the Mediterranean have been the nexus of exchange and really the cradle of so much civilization dating back to the Bronze Age, as you say. You know, the only ziggurat, that's these step pyramids that we have in Europe, is actually in Sardinia. It's 6,000 years old, and you can go visit and climb up these staircases to visit the only pyramid. It's called Montecoldi. And then you go to the Bronze Age, and as you say, there's seven to 10,000 of these stone towers throughout the island. It's, it's, it makes the island really incomparable in the rest of Europe in terms of Neolithic and Bronze Age monuments. And they call this the, the open museum, of course, of, of the island. And we're just at the beginning of trying to understand, you know, in the last 25 years, there's been an explosion of research and archeological data. They've found recently, uh, actually it was in 1970s, but finally they've been doing the research to realize that there are these colossal statues, for example, at Monte Prama on the western mm -hmm. coast that go back 3,000 years, these eight-foot-tall statues of soldiers and warriors and whatnot that predate even much of ancient uh, Greece. And in fact, last week, the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, received one of these sculptures for the first time in history. So I think this is the exciting thing. Instead of seeing Sardinia as kind of outside the, the mainstream, we're finally beginning to restore the island and reconsider it as a, as a central part of Italy and Europe. In fact, I say you can't really understand Italy until you begin to understand Sardinia. Mm -hmm. I love what you just said there, restory the island. Um, and that makes me remember, you know, this humorous line that you quote in the book. Um, there, one writer wrote something about, uh, about the island, uh, Sardinia, Sardinia being, being a, um, a very narrated place but more narrated than visited, right? And the funny thing is, so you spend about a year there, um, but very famously, um, Daesh Lawrence only spent six days on the island, and yet he wrote the book Sea in Sardinia, which is arguably, you know, the most famous travel book on the island. And in this book, he, he wrote, you know, Sardinia has no history, no date, no race, no offering. Um, so... I guess I, I, I perceive your book as trying to kind of challenge this this narrative and, and to like restory the story of, of Sardinia. So I was I guess maybe to set the stage, can you tell us a little bit about D.H. Lawrence and his take on Sardinia and like maybe how might you be responding to this kind of overlooked or dismissed narrative, dismissive narrative of the island? Does that make sense? Right. Oh, sure, certainly. And, you know, D.H. Lawrence, you know, we, we love him and hate him. He really is one of the godfathers of travel writing. You mm -hmm, know, that mm -hmm. book, See in Sardinia, was really a landmark book for, for a travel narrative because here's someone with a novelist talent going in and now not just talking about a guidebook, but actually giving descriptions. The problem was he was very 
disinterested in describing what he really saw. <laughs> he was there for six days, as you say, and he hated every single day of it. He's, you know, hovering around his little thermos. You know, a hundred years ago, he had a very modern invention. He wanted to keep his tea hot, so he had a thermos. And yet here, he had gone to the island to look for the primitive. He wanted to find a world that was outside industrialization, and he didn't find it. In fact, he found just the opposite, and that turned him off. And he really, you know, in his own cantankerous way, uh, wrote a, uh, an incredible look, book, but a book that was just incredibly uninformed. He famously took no notes. He famously didn't want to visit things. He went to Nuoro, which is really the, the central area of the mountains where Grazia de Leda, who just a few years later after his visit would win the Nobel Laureate for Literature, he said, oh, good, there's nothing to see in Nuoro. Let's go on. <laughs> and of course, in that very moment, there was an explosion of artists. Francesco Ciuso was in the, the Biennale in Venice as one of the most important, important sculpture sculptors uh, in all of Italy. And in fact, in 1921, think about this, and this is where I began to kind of put things together of how we, uh, we don't really do our homework, Jeremy, as travel writers. I, I refer to us as traveling writers. You know, we, we, we un, in order to, to understand the context of what we're seeing, we have to simply sit down and talk to people. We have to interview people. We have to research. We have to, you know, hear the stories from the folks there as opposed to just what our eyes are seeing and perceiving without the context or the historical context. So in 1921, when when uh, Lawrence is searching for the primitive, you know, here you have Antonio Gramsci, the great political theorist who still today is really one of the most important thinkers uh, that we've valued from the 20th century. And in 1921, he's a Sardinian who's founding the entire Communist Party for all of Italy with another Sardinian named Togliatti. And then also in 1921, you have the great resistance leader, Emilio Lussu, who wrote a, an incredible book on World War I that was featured on the cover of the New York Times book review, you know, compared to Hemingway. And Lussu, of course, returned to the island he launches the first autonomous political party in all of Italy and goes on to help rewrite the, the constitution after the war uh, in Italy and becomes a foundational figure. And in 1921, far from being primitive, he's leading very much the, the political activities. And then you have this explosion of writers and artists and sculptors. And, and then you have mining strikes in the western part of the island that are affecting the entire country. So once again, it's this it's this strange dichotomy between perception and reality. And what Lawrence didn't understand was truly exciting and, 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 and happening on the island. Mm -hmm. But what we have 100 years later is his perception, which really kind of missed the boat for the whole point. Right. And also the mining strikes. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there, there were some, there's some mining strikes or incidents in the 19th century um, that Balzac um, went to the island to investigate and, and to, to write about. Are those the strikes that you're referring to? Uh, well, those are even later. Okay. You know, uh, okay. Balzac, uh, so the main mining in 1900, uh, kind of in the early part of the 20th century, there was a, a horrible massacre at a mining strike that affected all of Italy. It took place in, the, in a little village called Buguru, which was a mining town. And that actually led to the first national strike in all of Italy because of what happened in Sardinia. But about 20 years prior to that, Balzac, the great French writer, had done his, had been told that there were these incredible silver mines in, uh, in, in north of uh, Sardinia, actually not far from Alghero. 
And so he came in this kind of scheme to kind of buy up the land real quick and, and try to sell the silver. And it was a disaster. He lost a lot of money. He wasn't allowed to immediately come aboard because there was a cholera epidemic. And he, you know, and so because he was stuck on the boat for a couple of days, he referred to the Sardinians as savages, as Africans. You know, he kind of belittled them throughout. Um, and that's really a perception that he brought back to France just because of his his, you know, is the calamity he had with his mining experience. So I think that's what we're, we're getting is that so many people have gone to Sardinia to with their own narrative, and then they've come back with their own narrative, and they really haven't even begun to open the front door and go in and see this amazing island and its ancient cultures and its contemporary cultures as well. Mm-hmm. I think the listeners will be able to pick on pick up on what you're you're, you're referring to here is it seems that, you know, you're, you're speaking about history, you're speaking about cultural history, intellectual history. Um, and your, your, your book is informed by, by history in ways that perhaps Lawrence's book, um, wasn't, um, what a few, I guess, months ago now I, time flies, but when I spoke with uh, Robert Kaplan on the podcast, he told me that, um, you know, for him, travel was like a literary device through which he, you know, explores other themes and topics. Um, and it seems like that's the same for you, um, in your book, because it covers a variety of topics like literature, history, archeology, span so on and so forth. And you just referred to this idea that, you know, you don't like the term travel writer instead preferring traveling writer. And I, and I'm not trying to force here Kaplan's framework on, onto you in your book, but I was Wondering, like, if you could speak to this idea of of travel as a as a device, because I think you're doing that in this book. I think you pull it off quite well. Um, you know, the chapters are framed through your travels on the island, but then there's much more. It's not just you know a narrative of you and your travels. You dive into the history. You speak with people. You know, you take us on you know historical journeys. We, we learn about the history, we learn about the culture, we learn also about your experiences on the island. So, like, how does this book, how do, how, how do you view this book? Is it a travel book? Is it a history book? What kind of book is it? Yeah, you know, that's, you're, you're forcing me up against the wall here, Jeremy, to define <laughs> this book. And so it's a great question. You know, Bruce Chatwin, who mm-hmm. was really one of my exemplars, is this great writer, of course, from England. You know, he wrote his landmark book called In Patagonia which was about his travels, is searching both for the Welsh community, but also traveling throughout Argentina. And he wrote his American agent and said, hey, God forbid that you're going to market this as a travel book. And of course, this becomes really you know, a foundational travel writing right. book for all of us. And, I, and I, I don't worry about labels as much as I want the book not to be diminished or dismissed as just um, a guide. I, I think what you've seen is and, and I tr- very much believe in, in, in what you're saying with Kaplan, who's a tremendous writer, is that traveling allows us, it gives us the opportunity to go through several layers uh, of the journey. And so there's that superficial layer of what we see, what we eat, the people we meet, where we stay, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the deeper layer, which is, you know, what are people uh writing and storytelling and what is the music and what is the cultural uh, expressions of the day and what is the connection between food and the geography and the land. And then as we go, go deeper, we get, go from history into archaeology. And so I see traveling. That's why I say we're traveling writers is that we're not 
travel writers per se, and that we're writing only exclusively about our travels going from point A to point B to point C, but we're writing about what we have learned and discovered. And that's both for me as a, as a literary critic and a literary historian to go into their literature, to translate it. I, I felt a big part of my book, having worked on this for five years, was to open the door for so many Sardinian writers who haven't been translated um, and to translate excerpts of their books to expose them not only to an English-speaking or French-speaking or German-speaking audience, but also to the Italian-speaking uh, audience. That, you know, so many Sardinians actually just uh, don't even, um, they prefer to write in their own variant of a Sardinian language as opposed to Italian. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Charles Dickens, um, in the mid-19th century, in his magazine called Household Words, he said, almost every Sardinian is a natural-born poet. And he was referring to the fact that there was this incredible tradition of storytelling and poetry on the island that, had, that went back also to the, to the Bronze Age. We have these little bronze statues of orators and poets. Hmm. And, and still today, if you go to the island, you go to these villages, there's what they call the Gata Poetica, these poetry slams of oral poetry that's still a very uh, dynamic tradition. And I feel like that's part of entering the, the journey that we really have to include if we're really going to capture uh, a, a truer picture of what the island is all about. Right. And yeah, I'm, I'm sensing a, a little bit of a, a distance and perhaps this is, you know, not just an American thing, but maybe it's growing into kind of a, a broader, I guess, sentiment, this, this distance that we take from the label of travel literature or, or travel writer. Um, and I was wondering like maybe what, what, what your take is on this, because it seems like People are trying to take. There's, they're cautious of, of of using that term, travel writer or travel literature, not just because of the environmental impact of travel, but because, as you say, perhaps that this idea that um, travel literature is about being a guidebook in some some respects, or travel literature isn't kind of serious literature, or doesn't go deeply enough, or doesn't deal with some of the more grave serious topics like it's a frivolous genre I, I get the sense that some people um, um regard travel literature as what do you do you, do you sense the sentiment at all in trying to get your book published i hear it you're, you you got your book published your book is being published by melville house right um and nonfiction slash history slash literature slash travel like did you experience any pushback on trying to get this book published or what was that like yeah that's a good question you know um it is it is kind of a dual marketing approach because it is being marketed for the uh the travel narrative travel narrative nonfiction, and it's also being marketed uh in history um and right now for example i i'm very happy to see it it's it's kind of a bestseller for italian history and that really kind of reaffirms to me the the amount of research I invested in mm -hmm. and the kind of the approach I took to the book. But at the same time, it's doing really well uh, in the travel narrative uh, sections of, of bookstores. So I think you can do both. I, I'm like you in that I, I really value travel literature. I mean, I'm at heart a wanderer and a traveler. I wrote another book about Mexico. I, I've written books, as you mentioned, about Appalachia, about the frontera in, in Arizona, Mexico. Um, I've written about my own region of Southern Illinois and its history. Uh, all that, to me, is symbolic of a journey. I mean, what mm -hmm. is a great history if it's not a journey? You know, you're journeying through history. You're journeying through the layers of history. 
you're journeying through communities, you're journeying through the lives of people who've made history. And so I, I honestly don't see uh, a contradiction between the, the two genres, be it cultural history and history and social history with, with travel literature. And I love great works. You know, I'm, I'm a great reader of Jan Morris, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the books on Italy. I'm a great reader of Colin Thubrin and, 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 and more contemporary writers like Barry Lopez and, and of course, people like Chatwin and, and, and modern writers today. There's just, there's a lot of great travel literature out there. And I think it's because writers have taken the time to understand where they are. They've done their homework. They've gone and met with with local writers and local historians and interviewed and stayed and tried to really, you know, made a, a real attempt to reflect what they're experiencing. Um, I think what what we're we're not mentioning, it's kind of the hundred pound gorilla in the room, is that there is a lot of bad travel writing, right? Especially. You know, 20 years ago, there was a whole kind of a spike in travel writing of kind of silly, goofy journeys. It's pretty much all about me, uh, totally uninformed, uh, kind of uh, a lot of young people going various places, really making no effort to learn the language or, or you know, doing their research. Uh, I mean, then these books kind of sold well, and, and then, you know, no, nobody really looks at them again. And I think that's kind of what people are trying to veer away from. And I think that market itself actually has kind of uh, frayed away anyway. Mm -hmm. What was your experience like pitching uh, this book to your agent or publisher? Yeah, you know, that's a a good question. Uh, It's funny, you know, the initial response was was mixed. It was like, oh, this sounds like a great idea. It's amazing. There's no book on on, uh, Sardinia since Lawrence. Um, You know, they clearly saw that I done my homework and had been working on it. But the initial response was, hey, who's going to pick up a book on Sardinia other than a travel guide? And and we really had to kind of sell people on the fact that, hey, you know, there's there is this incredible market for people wanting to understand uh, this country. Italy still remains typically the number one destination for, for American travelers in particular. Um, and I think what we had to show is that, you know, people do want to get beyond the Venice, Florence, Rome axis, and they do want to begin to discover other parts uh, of Italy, and that there is this extraordinary story. There's this incredible discoveries of archaeology now that are putting Sardinia on the map uh, in, in every respect in terms of its historical significance. And then there is this kind of recovery of modern day Sardinia that has been ignored from the literary aspects to, you know, other historical and political aspects. You know, it, there was this great writer named Naredo Rudas, who was a psychiatrist who went and did a psychoanalysis of Sardinia. And you can imagine how terrifying that would be. <laughs> and she was shocked. She said, oh my God, what is it with all these writers in Sardinia? And so as she was working on her book, it was called The Island of Coral. She said, Right now, there are four writers who are globally important coming from this island. Of course, she was referring to Grazia de Leda, who won the Nobel Laureate, first uh, Italian woman to win the Nobel Laureate, and the, and the second Italian. There, of course, was Gramsci, and there was Emilia Lussu, the great resistance leader. But there also was a, a novel by a writer named Salvatore Sata, who was a great jurist and well-known in Italy, um, but who was from Sardinia. And when he died, they found this novel in his drawer 
that really was a this incredible masterpiece. Susan Sontag, the great literary critic, called it the great greatest European novel of the 20th century. It was called the, the, the Day of Judgment and went on to be translated in scores of languages and really captured kind of like a Garcia Marquez magic realism uh, of the island. And so I, I think there's that part of, of Sardinia and Italy that the readers really want to know about. And I, and I think that that's what we're finding. We're, we're actually having very good luck with the book because I think there is this audience who are, who are hungry to read about a different Italy. Yeah. And I think that's the, one of the virtues of your book. It's, um, you know, not just a travel narrative. It's, it's, it's rich, it's historic, it's cultural. And, you know, any visitor to, to the Island, um, I think will learn a lot if they pick up this book prior to, to visiting it. And it would kind of position them well to, to just to be more than a passing tourist to, to the Island. And hopefully Jeff, your book will rep- re- replace Lawrence's book in all the gift shops in Sardinia. <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, he's uh, he's got an amazing legacy, and and I have this love hate relationship with Lawrence because I I first as I wrote, you know, I, I come from a coal mining family like he did, and I despise coal like he does. And I first encountered him when I was traveling in Guatemala, Mexico, and then here he writes these amazing books about that. Yeah, and then of course he ends up in Taos, New Mexico, and. Um, and, and I actually got relocated as a kid as well into the American Southwest. And so I find that his kind of peregrinations have been fascinating. And so he truly was an amazing figure. He's very cantankerous and he wrote some great books and then he wrote some bad books. He just cranked out a lot of books. Uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting. And Lawrence is not it. There's, there's a lot of, of writers who I talk about. I talk about as much, I talk a lot about, as you know, about other writers who come to Sardinia in their perspective as much as I do about the, the local writers, because it fascinates me to look at how other foreign writers have uh, uh, perceived and written about the island. Right. Well, we wish you the best of luck with this book. And um, we're a bit short on time here, but in closing, uh, let us know where we can find you online and let us know what's going on in your schedule um, as this podcast goes out. Sure. Thank you so much. And I appreciate your time. And it's a great podcast. I'm glad to be on. You know, I'll be speaking in London uh, on the 22nd of June. There's a book party at Little Sardinia Restaurant there in London. 2023. uh, June 22nd. Yeah. Okay. And then on June 27th, uh, I'll be speaking at the uh, Piola Piccola. It's a bookstore in Brussels, Belgium. Um, and that'll be the first reading for me in Belgium. And uh, that'll be a fabulous experience. And then I am off to Sardinia to do um, kind of events all summer as we wait the, the book to be translated into Italian. And I can be reached, of course, um, online. There's jeffbiggers.com is my website. And then the book is called In Sardinia, An Unexpected Journey in Italy. Thanks so much, Jeff, for coming on the podcast. And we wish you well. Great. Thanks, Jeremy. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.